Hello, I'm Trevor Keegan and this is Out and Proud. In this new series, I'm chatting to four prominent people from the LGBTQIA community about how they've embraced their identity and are living their lives out and proud. This week, author and screenwriter Emma Donoghue talks about leaving the oppressive atmosphere of 80s Dublin and ultimately building the family of her dreams in Canada. Emma, thank you so much for joining us in Paris. You're adding a bit of panache to the programme before it even begins. <laughs> thank you. I'm delighted and to be providing panache before I've even said anything. So yeah, I hope everybody pictures me in Paris all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Firstly, how do labels sit with you, I'm interested? Because obviously you, you have a few, the lesbian label, the writer label, Irish, Irish woman writer and Canadian as well in there too. So how how do they sit in your head? I'm very comfortable with them. I seem to... to add them on, you know, one over the other as I go along. Um, I would say I've, I've, I've never been, I've never felt that any of those labels held me back or, or, or limited me. Um, for instance, I've always been really enthusiastic about the, about the lesbian label or lesbian writer even, but if anyone ever thought that that meant I had to write according to some kind of program, then I'd bristle, but I don't bristle at the labels as such. So they fit comfortably with you. That's good. Um, I know you've said in the past as well that you started writing around about the age of eight and writing was a form of escapism from feelings of being uncomfortable with your sexuality at all or confusion. Absolutely. Um, it, it's funny because I started, yes, I started poetry at, at eight, but I would say I started writing teenage poetry around the same time as I realised I was queer. So it's almost impossible to separate the, the therapeutic from the artistic project there, you know. It was it was such an obvious vent for my feelings to be able to you know rush off to my room after school each day and write these complex you know dramatic and and unconvoluted love poems always addressed to you a gender neutral speaker. Then I could, for instance, you know send in a poem to school competitions and and I'd have the exquisite pleasure of reading aloud a poem in front of the whole school, including the girl I was in love with. You know the kind of agony and ecstasy of that. So you were writing about a crush? Yes, you could say crush, but, you know, I was obsessed with this girl for years on end and was I was keeping diaries from 14 till, I think, 19. Um, so it, it felt like the the biggest, hugest event of my life. And I, you, you could, could say that as a proto-writer, I was glomming onto one big subject. Um, you know, in many ways, I enjoyed this this solitary obsession and the fact that I couldn't tell the world about it probably added to the pleasure, even though, of course, there were those usual, you know, fears and anxieties of being in the closet. But the writing and the and the being in love with this girl are so tied up in each other. I, I can't remember my teenage years without thinking of those two together. Years, years later, after I'd, after I'd you know, recovered from that particular love, I'd, I told her many years later. I can't think of anything more flattering than having poetry written about you. <laughs> wasn't all very good poetry, mind you, but, you know, I had I, hundreds of poems and um, I was, I was, I think, very confident as a writer. So even at, at age nine, when I started copying my poems into a, a, a big hardback notebook, I titled it The Collected Works of Emma Donoghue, Volume One. <laughs> and more to come, obviously. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In, obviously, you speak there about school and being kind of angst-ridden, which most of us are in that age bracket between kind of 14, 18. You know, it is a trick to... I'm sure straight kids are angst-ridden too. That's the thing. It's not like they sail through adolescence. But did you feel the difference? I mean, when I was, I went to an all-boys secondary rugby playing school and I really felt oh, that I knew straight away that what I was feeling was technically 
inverted commas, wrong. Did you ever have that sense? Yeah, I, I never felt it was really morally wrong, but I knew it was socially wrong. So I would say I felt shame, but not guilt, you know, following that social religious distinction. Um, and I felt my whole culture thought it was wrong. And I felt that if I was foolish enough to confide in any teacher or priest or anything, that I would be thrown out of there and separated. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I definitely felt, you know, there was a there was a gun pointed at me, as it were. And, and the culture more broadly, you know, in 1980s Ireland, there were many things happening that gave me the creeps. I remember the, the moving statues phenomenon. I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm a late 20th century woman, a feminist. I'm in this culture where people think they see statues crying and moving. You know, get me out of here. Um, I, I planned to emigrate as soon as I could, really. And I remember that the two, the two referenda banning and further banning abortion, for instance, and so I really felt Ireland was an alien place and, and that lit literature was my temporary escape from it, but that ultimately I was getting on that airplane and getting out of there. So you were fleeing. And I think most of us have a sense of we want to flee sometimes, that local kind of community that you think is a bit claustrophobic and not ready for your big, big plans and big, big ideas. Absolutely. And writers have often wanted to flee. Um, and also in the 1980s, you know, most people were fleeing. We had a feeling that there were no jobs for us. Um, I would say, you know, in my family that the general message was get a degree and get out of here so you can have a job. So um, it was it was quite a bleak time in that sense. And we certainly all had our had our eyes on on either the Atlantic or the Irish Sea. You know, it seemed it seemed logical to to grow up and get out of here. So that was my initial move. Yeah. And you'd never told anybody before you did the, the, the fleeing bit. Oh, I did. Yeah, no, I, I started coming out to to a few friends in the in the last I think the last year of school. Yeah, and then gradually to family members and a couple of them guessed. Um, and then I finally, you know, I it's funny, I, I left the country before coming out to my mother because I was so afraid, you know, what if she didn't accept me? She was the one who mattered most to me. Hers was the love I wanted to keep most, you know. So um, I, I went off to Cambridge at 20 and started my PhD. And um, I promised my housemates in Cambridge, I was living in this sort of lesbian housing co-op, I promised them I'm going to come out to my mother at Christmas, okay? By the time I come back here in January, I will have come out to her. And I hadn't managed it, so I delayed the flight a week. <laughs> Give myself just a few more days. And I finally managed it the evening before I left. Um, I think we'd been out somewhere and she, she drove home and she parked the car. So I seized the last possible moment and told her. And she said, oh, I've known since you were 16. So, you know, I had gone through five years of, of further angst and nothing really. But it's possible she was more able to accept me at 21 than she would have at 16, you know. So, so it, it, was, it, it was a good time to have the conversation and she was utterly loving and accepting. And what about the, the friends you told as well? I mean, how do you even get the formulation of words in your head? And what kind of scenario were you in when you actually physically told them? Yeah, um, it would have been out of school. So a social occasions out of school. And I knew that these friends were pretty liberal, you know. I mean, that, I didn't feel that the... Uh, that, you know, fellow 17-year-olds were as homophobic as the culture at large. Um, so I don't remember anyone reacting badly. No, I think I think friends were fine. It was really authority figures I was afraid of. It was it was nuns and teachers and, you know, psychiatrists and, and all those different authority figures. And had you built it up in your head beforehand? Because, you know, I think that happens a lot of us. You build it up and you build it up and you think it's going to be something really major and cathartic. And actually, they kind of go, like you said, some people go, oh, yeah, I knew that. That's true. It's true. It's just there was there was so much kind of joking about it in a way that made me tense. I remember people were constantly quoting some figure about the one in ten, you know, like 
one in ten is gay. So if if somebody, I don't know, if somebody looked around the room and counted and there were ten of us, they'd be like, ooh, which of us is the one in ten? And this kind of joke made me just so tense. And also people generally didn't guess about me because I looked, well, not, not like high femme, but, you know, I've always been a sort of skirt wearer, lipstick in the handbag kind of person. And so people were not guessing about me on the basis of the stereotypes about um, tomboyish lesbians. So um, in a way, it was up to me to, to, to decide to tell them. But no, I didn't have any experiences of, of telling someone and having them react with horror. As I told a few people or one or two of my siblings, I began to relax about it, yeah. But I was I was still afraid that my mother wouldn't be able to be okay with it. And so to find that she'd known since I was 16 and she was just utterly unqualified in her love and appreciation of me, it's just one of the nicest moments I can remember in my life, you know? She said, you're still my baby, you know? It's the most important thing, isn't it? It's so emotional when somebody just gives you that love back unconditionally. Yeah, yeah. I know, so, you know, I, I vow to be like that to my kids now. And we sometimes, within our family, we sort of joke about what could the kids come and announce to us that would horrify me and Chris, you know, like if they were, I don't know, you know, if you can't manage that as a parent, if you can't manage to accept your child the way they are, then really you've, you've failed, uh, you failed the job. Um, you speak there about your partner and Cambridge. That is where you met Chris. Yeah, we, um, it, it's funny, we've never said wife because I suppose we, we paired up in the early 90s when... Not only was there no same-sex marriage, but we, coming out of feminism, we saw ourselves as kind of a, a different form of relationship, you know, like, like somehow freer and more chosen and more, um, I don't know, like a really high-quality relationship, not just some, you know, sluggish, zombified existence of, of going to the supermarket and driving the kids to school. No, no, this is, this is true love. <laughs> and so occasionally... You know, like most of our friends by now have had a some form of wedding. And so Chris and I sometimes joke like, like, oh, look at us in our radical bohemian lifestyle, you know, yeah, just because we've never technically got married. It's funny, on my early books, I used to write, Dunning who lives with her lover, <laughs> which some people thought was, was really, you know, claiming to be cooler than I am. Um, but no, these days I, mo- I mostly say partner. <laughs> yeah, so Chris and I met back in uh, 1994. And um, that means we're coming up to our 30th, can you believe? And, um, you know, if, if we ever sound slightly squabbly, one of the kids will say to the other, oh, are they going to make it to 30? Will they make it to the big 3-0? <laughs> can you remember the first time you met Chris? Yes, yes. It was at a seminar, would you believe? Very Cambridge. I was there doing my PhD in English, 18th century literature. And um, a friend of mine was, you know, looking for girls, basically. So I said, look, there's this seminar on about how to write lesbian fiction in the age of AIDS. So I said, come on, come on to my housemate. We'll, we'll go check out that seminar. And and in the seminar, I said to my friend, there's one at the back. <laughs> you know. And we invited her to our housing cooperative for um, tea afterwards. So, um, yes, we met in a very university-based way. And Chris is a professor. And, yeah, together since 1994, she had about a year and a half in Cambridge where we overlapped. And then she had to go back to Canada to a job. And, you know, I couldn't argue with that, um, whereas writing can be done anywhere. So I commuted over there for a while. I would go there for about one month and three. And then I was waiting for her to say, please move to Canada and make me happy forever. But um, she was being very Canadian about this, very polite and reticent. So eventually I said to her, I'm planning to move to Canada and make you happy forever. And she said, oh, fine. So that's what we did. And was Cambridge this kind of hotbed of liberalism where you just felt, yeah, I found a tribe? It was. Yeah, it really was. Um, I mean, already I'd been looking towards Britain as a place that seemed so ahead of Ireland. 
Um, I certainly don't think of it that way now, by the way. But, you know, in the 80s, when Channel 4 first came on, I remember watching programs featuring lesbians and just thinking, wow, you know, my people. So um, when I moved to Cambridge, it all felt very Channel 4. And I was in this women's housing cooperative and I had to become vegetarian immediately. It just, it just seemed like the culture. And I joined a women's magazine. And um, I mean, in, even in Dublin, I'd been in various lesbian and gay societies at UCD and at Trinity. But Cambridge, I felt I got to really live in that world and be out from day one. So I think the first place you live where you're out from day one can feel like a particular zone of freedom, you know? Well, was it difficult then popping back home at all out of term time? Did you ever feel like, oh, no, it's so small and claustrophobic and what am I doing here and what, I want to go back to Cambridge? Not really, because first of all, Ireland was starting to change so much. You know, the years I'm talking about are 1990s and 93. So I remember going to a Pride in Dublin, maybe 1993, where, um, you know, they just decriminalised gay sex and it all felt thrillingly new and as if there was progress happening at top speed. And we already began to glimpse that in, rather than lagging behind Britain, that Ireland could actually just leap over several stages. Um, but I certainly didn't in 1993 know that Ireland was going to change in such a wholesale way. I mean, I was I was home in Dublin about a week ago and, you know, every bank and so on seemed to have big displays for, for Pride Month. And, you know, a little I passed a little Protestant church and it had a huge banner saying, male or female, gay or straight, God loves you equally. And, you know, just such a wholesale change in just in my lifetime and I'm not dead yet, you know. So, yeah, it all happened far faster than I thought. Um, so, so my feeling about that sort of old Ireland, that was really mostly in my teens in the 1980s. As soon as it was the 90s, I could feel the winds of change. And every time I was home, there was some new change. And there was economic change, of course, too. There was the whole, um, you know, Celtic tiger and and new money and new ideas. And I didn't like all of it, but I, but I could tell that Ireland was kind of roaring into the future. And that, that moment of decriminalisation in 93 was so important. I mean, I know that obviously the it referendum really in was. 2015 was that kind of similar state of euphoria for us as a community. 93, we went from literally Victorian laws to suddenly complete decriminalisation, not going through any of the stages that they had in Britain. And it was a huge big deal, even for those of us who would never fear that we'd be locked up. Just at a symbolic level, it was absolutely crucial to feel that we were put on the map. And also, I was starting to come out in public. Um, I'd done things like debates at UCD, so public in a little way, but um, I went on the Late Late Show, and that was a kind of, you know, not to 60 experience of like, suddenly I'm, suddenly I'm out on the television screens of Ireland. And I was afraid that, you know, the way with the Late Late Show, people might wander in with a cup of tea and just glance and not quite know what they're looking at. So I wanted anyone who even saw it for one minute to see what I was about. So I wore a little I Heart Women badge. Is that the time then afterwards where you were, I think one of your sisters went to mass soon after your appearance and were you denounced from the pulpit as a result of that? I was, yeah. One of my sisters, I think was at her child's, oh no, I went down to her child's confirmation. That's right. And my sister pointed at the priest and said, he's the one who denounced you from the altar after you were on the Late Late Show. <laughs> I love that you're laughing about it. <laughs> you have to laugh, don't you? I mean, there have certainly been some moments over the last 30 years when what I call the old Ireland seems to rear up, you know. When you work in a job which involves publicity, talking to the media, I think you choose your sort of media persona early. Like some people have a kind of a bad boy or bad girl persona or fight picking or starting sort of flame wars on Twitter. Whereas my persona... And I think I chose this partly because I am kind of very conflict avoiding, but also because I didn't want to seem like a bad tempered lesbian in those early days. And, the, you know, the, the cliches around 
gay men, the cliches around lesbian were very different. And I would say the cliches around lesbian were, you know, we dressed terribly, we were ugly and we were bad tempered, you know, constantly quarrelling about petty points. And we're all flamboyant and theatrical. Exactly, exactly. Much more fun at a dinner party, but sort of fluffy, where the lesbians were just seen as scowling and stomping. Um, so I felt the single most useful thing I could do in encountering the media at Cherka from 1992 was to smile, you know, wear lipstick and smile. And so even when I was asked obnoxious questions, um, a bit later on once the kids are around, so this was in the 2000s, I felt my job was to keep smiling while I assertively answered the question. Because that way you, you sort of win the interview. You know, like if you stump off, the radio host has complete power to make mockery of you. So, yeah, I suppose I saw it as a bit of a sort of, you know, tussle. And if I could stay civil but make my points, then I would, you know, ultimately do more good, especially to, to queer listeners, you know. In terms of living in Canada, I, I was also reading some research where you were saying that you, you feel freer there. Is it generally a more liberal minded, freer sort of environment? And if that's the case, why? The problem is this isn't really a scientific study, right? Because I lived in Ireland full time in the 80s. And since then, I've only visited Ireland. So it could well be that if I, you know, lived in Dublin, like some of my friends do, I would feel perfectly free there too. Um, so it's not really a fair comparison, especially as the decades have gone by, you know. And again, if I was living in, in Canada in the 1980s, who knows what it would have felt like. But I would certainly say when I first moved to Canada full time in, I think, 1998, it did feel like a bit of a breath of fresh air because I wasn't so... Put it this way, it felt like the lesbian label, which I've never minded, but it felt like in Ireland, this was a huge banner across my forehead. And it felt like in Canada, it was just a little, you know, logo on my sleeve, you know. And certainly once we started having kids in that, it just wasn't a big deal. Like it was no feeling of, you know, that we were, that we were outsiders. Or, you know, if someone in the playground asked something about the kid's father, like, is he tall? And I'd say, oh, actually he's a donor with two mothers. And then they would apologize. And so I found a place where I just don't have to be you know, thinking about being a lesbian every minute of every day. And the 14-year-old poetry-writing, lovelorn Emma, did she ever think that you could have the partner, the children, the family unit, the life that you were dreaming about, possibly? I might have hoped to have a girlfriend. I, I never would have thought I could have kids. And of course, this didn't weigh heavily on me in my teens because not many teenagers are gagging to have children, you know. Um, but as I got into my 20s, I began to have the first little flickers of of, of, of a wish. I remember um, Chris's mother showed me a baby picture of Chris having a bath in a bucket. For some reason, they weren't particularly poor. I don't know why she was having a bath in a bucket, but it made for a very cute picture. And I remember looking at that picture of, of baby Chris and thinking, oh, I want a baby like that. I want a baby with Chris, of Chris. And I mentioned this to Chris and she said, never going to happen. The whole point of being a lesbian for me is not to have children. I, I see it as just a totally different way of life. So I was a bit downhearted when Chris absolutely nixed the idea. Um, but I just I just kept, you know, bringing the subject up at intervals over seven years. And I, I broke her, Trevor, I broke her. So, so yeah, I, I, I quite often look, look back at the 14-year-old and think, wow, it's amazing that I didn't have to choose, you know, because clearly in many ways I'm quite conventional. So I love having the partner of 30 years and the house and, and the, you know, Weekly dinners with friends and and the children in particular be the the most you know thrilling surprise of my adult life and to get all that without ever having to deny my queer side um um it's just it's just amazing I'm just so glad I live in this particular cultural moment 
because I think in many previous eras I would have had to pick one or the other. Um, so I'm so glad that I that I got to have both and and got to write as well. You know, I'm a lucky bugger. You are. And you actually, I know we're not going to go too much into obviously the books and room and the movie and everything else has been done because you've had this spectacular career and it's not necessarily relevant to what we're talking about. We did write one particular book, uh, your second novel, which was based really kind of, was it semi-autobiographical in a sense because of the two characters falling in love, their teens and school, etc. Yeah, yeah. Hood, Hood published in, I think, 1995 was basically a sort of what if, if I had, you know, gone through that school and then come back as a teacher in that school, a closeted teacher. How might it have been? Um, so, um, yeah, I put a lot of myself into that one. And then I did one later about an Irish woman falling for a Canadian to Canada. So I've had a few autobiographical ones. But as you say, I've also had some some that are um, very different storylines like Room. Yeah. Have you ever had young lesbians contact you or even at a book signing or something like that and say thank you for writing that book or that resonated with me or that theme is kind of close to my heart or how I'm feeling. Absolutely. Um, I've had people um, write to me to say like, I carried my copy of Hood around all these years and I was lost in a in a flood and I found another, would you possibly sign that for me? So just as I feel my life was saved by coming across things like Emily Dickinson's poems to her sister-in-law, um, I love the idea that books of mine could could make a difference to to readers too. I love the way you never quite know which book is going to reach which person in the world. We were talking about the Late Late Show a little while ago. I just, I'm going to read just something, right? This is after a, a letter written to you, I think, after you appeared in the Late Late Show, okay? So I'll read it and then we'll talk about it. It says, I'm a 30-year-old lesbian. I live with my elderly parents who don't know I'm gay. My brother is my main supporter. Alas, my sister thinks it's all in my imagination. It is only in the last two years that I've become comfortable with myself. I watched you on the Late Late Show last year I felt I had to say thank you for speaking out for the majority of us who cannot. 30 years oh. later, how does that make you feel? And that is so moving. That's superb. How do you happen to have that letter? Well, that's just our good research on the programme that we have that. But it's so, what I think about that letter, Emma, is not alone is it moving for you, but 30 years later, we could still get that letter. You could, you could. And um, we, we, we tend to overgeneralise about cultural change. Like if you're out and proud and living in a liberal bit of Dublin, you can be completely oblivious to what it might be like to be in, in a certain village or, you know, still within, say, the Catholic Church. And so, so yes, you could absolutely get that letter and you could, you could, you could possibly get that letter from rural Canada too. Um, so I love, in a way, the confidence she had to write to me, you know, because it's not at all easy for her when she's writing that letter, but she knows what she wants to say. You know, it's it's written with unusual clarity and and force. Um, that is that is so moving. Um, I mean, I felt you know I was not the major campaigner. You know, campaigners put so much time and work into it. Um, all I did was you know give interviews about my books, which you could say is literally self-promoting. Um, but just because I answered the questions honestly when I was asked, so many people were deeply appreciative. That. I don't know whether or not so, she gave you a return address, but what would you have said back to her, or what would you say back to somebody now? Well, I'm quite, I've had quite a few such letters over the years. I mean, not hundreds, but certainly dozens. Um, and I suppose I would emphasise how how grateful I am that she's reaching out, but also how clearly she's she's got past most of her obstacles. 
She's able to name herself. She's not writing saying, I have these filthy feelings. I don't know how they all of my imagination. She's way beyond her sister. She knows the truth of it. She knows how important it is to have some support. And she knows that, that time is ticking away. She mentions her age. You know, she realizes too much time has already been spent hiding. So she sounds ready, ready to, ready to go for me, doesn't she? It's, uh, there's, a, there's a momentum to the letter. There's a real clarity about it. So I would probably have echoed that back to her and pointed out how far she, she'd come on that path already, that she knew she wasn't dirty. She knew she wasn't bad. I'd love to know where she is today and what happened in the intervening 30 years as well. It would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, 30 years, here we are still talking like that, but there are so many positives. But the mere fact that you and I, two gay people, are sitting here talking about the positivity and embracing our identity is what proves how far we really have come. Thank you so much, Emma, for sharing your story. It's been amazing to listen to. Stay where you are, though, because you still have one task to do, which is pick a song to end today's programme with. But before we do that, I just want to say that um, it obviously isn't easy sometimes to embrace your identity like we've been talking about. So you can find details of organisations and groups that you can talk to. It's all at rte.ie forward slash support. Now, your final deed of the day, Emma, tell us about your song, why you've chosen it and what it is. Sure. Um, it, it's funny how even when I left Ireland, you know, it, it, it was still so much my, my home base. It mattered so much to me and I would notice all those little cultural changes. And on one of my visits home in the early 90s, um, my friend Margaret Lonergan said to me, there's this new band called Zrazy. They're a lesbian duo and they sing this exuberant Celtic folk music about women and about um, love and about freedom. And we had to go see them. So she dragged me off to their launch. And um, I, I remember in particular their song, um, I Believe in Mother Nature, and it just absolutely caught the kind of, you know, thrilling, liberatory vibe of the time. Here it is. Emma, Johnny, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.